Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Heather. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century, It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com slash tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode number 53. It's another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times on Margaret Tudor. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And the Agora podcast of the month for August is Alison Gerlach's The Unapologetic Capitalist. Leave your ego and politics at the door and build substantial value for your business with The Unapologetic Capitalist. Learn more at www.unapologeticcapitalist.com. And as always, you can get show notes and more information about the Renaissance English History Podcast at www.englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for my mailing list. Mailing list subscribers receive an extra mini cast each month, as well as cool stuff like book giveaways, news, and lots of other fun stuff. For this particular episode as well, you can also get lots more information on Margaret at www.tutortimes.co.uk. So I've just read you like three URLs. If you're still with me, yay for you. Let's introduce Melita and talk about Margaret Tudor. 
So Melita Thomas is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. So, Melita, tell us about Margaret's life and why you chose her as the person of the month. Well, we chose Margaret because until recently there's been a huge focus on Henry VIII and generally his first two wives. But now people are becoming a lot more interested in the other players at the Tudor and Stuart courts. Margaret, who was the eldest son of Henry VII, is one of the most significant figures politically, as it was her marriage to James IV of Scotland that finally brought about the union of the crowns in 1603. Margaret herself was a very frequent letter writer, so there's plenty of material to work from, and she had a very interesting and turbulent life, particularly after she was widowed very young. Um, We also wanted to choose Margaret because we try to have a balance between men and women and English and Scots people to to give a sort of an all-round balance to the whole politics of the era. So Margaret's life, well, she she was a princess of England, as I say, daughter of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, and she was married young to James IV of Scotland and lived a a very comfortable life as, as Queen Consort of Scotland until when she was not quite 24, her husband James was killed at the Battle of Flodden by an army of her brother, Henry VIII. So Margaret was was in a very difficult position. She was um, a queen of Scotland, but she was a princess of England. And she was widowed with a small son and a good deal of suspicion of her by the Scots, not surprisingly, given that it was her brother who had whose army had killed not just their king, but a huge number of Scots nobles died at Flodden. It was an absolutely disastrous battle for the country. Um, Margaret, as a young woman and an English woman, was definitely somewhat suspect. But her husband, James, had obviously trusted Margaret, and she had been left as governor of his son, James V, until or until such time as she remarried. Now, for some obscure reason, Margaret chose to remarry quite quickly. And the Scots nobles and Parliament were very, very eager at that time to throw off her her rule. And they invited the Duke of Albany, who was the next heir to the throne, to come from France, where he'd been living, and become regent. Now, Margaret was very resistant to being overlooked. She both for for political reasons obviously she wanted to be regent she clearly felt that that was her her role as as the mother of the young king but also she was very concerned about the safety of her sons she had two sons one born after her husband died and she had been aware all through her childhood of what had happened to her mother's brothers the princes in the tower who disappeared and their regent suddenly became king himself so margaret was extremely concerned that that's what would happen to her boys. In fact, she was she was not right in that. Albany was actually a very honourable man and he had no intention of usurping the throne, but it's easy to see why she was so nervous about it. So Margaret, now no longer Regent of Scotland, 
was forced to hand the boys over and she became so unhappy with the situation and the difficulties that she and her second husband, the Earl of Angus, encountered that she decided she would return to England. So she, well, escaped from Scotland, essentially, because Albany didn't want her to leave. But she snuck out in the middle of the night and slipped across the border to England, where she had another child, Lady Margaret Douglas. She spent about 18 months in England, partly in the north, and then she went down to London for the first time since she'd left home 11 years before. But after a while, it became apparent that her brother was far more interested in her returning to Scotland and trying to take the regency back than he was in keeping her uh, living in idleness in, in London. So she returned to Scotland and she came to an agreement with Albany. And things would have gone smoothly enough, apart from the fact that she and her second husband, Angus, they weren't happy together. I mean, it had been obviously a marriage perhaps of love on her part, but ambition on his. And when she discovered he was living with another woman, it became very difficult for her to accept that. So she tried to part from him, which created a certain amount of rather hypocritical complaint from Henry VIII at a later date when she, when she tried to get a divorce. So there was a long period in the late... 1510s when Albany was hoping to return to France and there was only the politics in Scotland are so complicated at the time it's very difficult to find out exactly who was doing what and why they were doing it but there was you know sort of endless power struggles really Angus wanted to take over Margaret wanted to be in charge Albany felt duty bound to hold on to his position so so there was a good deal of going backwards and forwards eventually albany actually did leave scotland but it didn't work out quite as margaret planned because angus kidnapped effectively james and ruled well so let's go back to her let's go back to her the alliance with scotland and her marriage Uh, what? How was that marriage important with the diplomacy of Henry the Seventh? Why did it come about? What did he hope to achieve with it? What was her role with that? Well, it's no news to anyone that England and Scotland had been locked in an on-off conflict for 200 years before Margaret's birth. Scotland was always threatened by its more powerful neighbour and historically had allied with France. Whenever possible, uh, Scotland would take advantage of English unrest, particularly during the Wars of the Roses, to try to improve its position. So in the 1490s, when Henry VII was threatened by the Perkin Warbeck Rebellion, uh, James IV mounted a couple of quite successful raids into northern England, even managing to besiege Norham Castle with Henry's ambassador inside it. Eventually, though, James and Henry concluded that there was more to be gained by peace Uh, Henry had had trouble raising enough taxation to actually fight in the borders and had been faced with rebellion from the south in Cornwall when he when he tried to raise uh, raise money for for an army into Scotland. So Henry and James then concluded terms for the first peace treaty between the countries for generations. And previously, peace was maintained by a series of truces rather than an actual treaty. This was known as the Treaty of Perpetual Peace, and it was to be cemented by the marriage of Margaret 
who was Henry's eldest daughter, to James. I mean, there was quite a big age gap between the two. Um, James was about 16 years older than Margaret. But, of course, in those days, that sort of thing was no bar to, um, to marriages. In fact, Margaret did a bit better than her sister Mary because she married, at, she married at 13 to a man of 30, whereas Paul Mary was married at 18 to a man in his 50s. <laughs> and James was actually a very attractive and charismatic man, so, so it wasn't quite as bad as it might have been for a young girl. Was, I read that um, Lady Margaret Beaufort had actually been involved in trying to have her not go up to Scotland until she was a bit older. And that was in part because of the trouble that uh, Lady Margaret had had with her own childbirth of Henry. Um, Is there truth to that? Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. It I think it must have been, you know, a very traumatic experience for, for Margaret Beaufort that that was obviously shared with with her family because because there's a number of examples in the Tudor family of reluctance to marry the girls uh, too young. Uh, Princess Margaret was, well, according to the law, a girl could be married at 12. That was, that was considered the, 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 uh, the minimum acceptable age for marriage. But as time was passing, people felt that that was, that was fine to be married in theory, but consummation shouldn't, shouldn't take mm-hmm. place too early. So what uh, Henry VII, I mean, Henry VII was actually quite glad perhaps to have an excuse to um, prevaricate a bit because he always liked to prevaricate just in case a better deal came along. But he did make it clear to the Scots ambassadors that uh, Lady Margaret and also his wife, Margaret's mother, Elizabeth of York, were reluctant for her to travel to Scotland too early in case James, quote, would not wait and would damage mm. her health. So it was agreed that Margaret would not be married um, in, in physical fact until she was closer to 14. So the, the treaty allowed for her to be married by proxy when she reached the age of 12, but then not to travel to Scotland until uh, September of 1503. Mm. In, in the event she went a little bit earlier, she left in uh, June of 1503 and she would have turned 14 in November of that year. So she was married a couple of months before her 14th mm. birthday. It does seem that probably, uh, James, he, they may have consummated the marriage on the first day, but she didn't fall pregnant for another two or three years. So it's, it's possible that uh, the marriage was consummated to make it valid Valid, but after that, that he, he he left her to to grow up a little before um you know resuming sort of normal married life. Interesting. So the diplomacy did this last into Henry VIII's time. How did things change once Henry VIII became king? Well, all, everything went downhill then. Um, Henry Henry VIII, Margaret's brother, he had a very different view. of the world from from that of Henry the Seventh, perhaps a more old-fashioned view. Henry the Seventh was very much a man for peace and trade, but Henry the Eighth dreamed of military glory, and ideally he wanted to reconquer France um, and emulate his hero Henry the Fifth. And he also liked to mm-hmm. think that Scotland was a vassal state to England, and uh, rather 
offensively to his brother-in-law in 1512 the uh, the english parliament um, announced that that uh, scotland was a vassal state so obviously something that was likely to appeal to the neighbours um yes so in 1513 or t- sort of it, over over the period 1512 to 13 henry became part of an extremely complex set of european alliances that were joined in a league against france uh, the, the Pope, uh, the King of Spain, Henry's father-in-law, and England were all allied against France. So James was was in a cleft stick. Uh, Scotland and France had been in alliance for two or three hundred years, and sooner or later he was going to be forced to choose between France and England. And Margaret, of course, you know, it was a shocking position for her. Uh, she'd been extremely well treated by James. She was uh, Queen of Scots. She was um, ha- had a son, and you know, who one day would be King of Scots himself. And she obviously had a duty to her husband and children. And she had also had a personal quarrel with with her brother, who, for some reason that is quite obscure, was withholding a legacy that Margaret was due. Now, the actual history of this legacy is is a bit convoluted. There's different information as to what it was and what it's and nobody seems to know what the value was but it you know it was felt to be very petty on the part of of henry the eighth to withhold this money or jewels or whatever it happened to be from margaret so so she was um you know sort of personally offended as was james who felt that henry was spiting him you know through through being unkind to margaret however you know the whole point of margaret's marriage had been to keep the peace so, you know, it was difficult for her, but she at that time appeared to be standing with her her husband. And by the middle of 1513, although James had made huge efforts, probably quite genuine to um, broker some sort of a peace, you know, the, the, the European politics, which were fundamentally about the domination of Italy, you know, there was no way he was going to persuade the Pope not to be in league against France. So so it was all a bit, uh, you know, it was wasted effort, really. However, James felt that he was obliged to support France because Henry was invading. And um, that was that was the terms of, of the of the treaty. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, James was perhaps not he was a he was not a good general. He rushed into the forefront of battle rather than protecting himself. But he was a man who was much much loved by his people and probably by his wife. And you know, the Battle of Flodden was was a complete disaster. Yeah, tell me about how how Margaret's life was affected it was, after Flodden. Uh, her life was completely overturned by the Battle of Flodden. Uh, up until that point, as I say, she'd been a you know, a, a queen consort and loved and respected as the king's wife, and he treated her very well. But now, at the age she wasn't, she wasn't yet twenty-four when when the Battle of Flodden happened. She was widowed, and suddenly, from being a queen consort, was was you know a stranger in a foreign land again, with her brother seen as the aggressor. James had left instructions that in the event of his death, she should. Um, act as regent for their son, or tutrix, as it was as it was called, governor and tutrix, and she mm. immediately, you know, did the right thing. She had uh, the young baby James. He was about um, seventeen months old, 
another James, confusingly. He was crowned as James V, and she had the support of the Scots Council and also the Parliament of Scotland, the Estates of Scotland. But she was pregnant at the time, and Margaret, she had a number of childbirths, and they were all very difficult and painful. And she was ill for, uh, for a while after all of them. So when her second son, Alexander, was born in spring of the following year, she was, she was ill and um, unable, perhaps, to be as dominant in government as she might have liked. And then for um, some reason, she decided to remarry, which instantly disabled her from, from being, being governor. Um, perhaps had she been older and possibly not English, it might have been that the Scots Lords would, would have accepted her remaining in the role. But as it was, they were determined to replace her with the Duke of Albany. So, you know, the rest of her life really became a struggle, not just for, for power, but for money. Um, Margaret, unfortunately, as I say, she, she wrote an awful lot of letters and probably 90% of them are complaints about money. Uh, Scotland was not a rich country. She felt that she hadn't been given her dower rights, either the money she and lands she should have been given on the death of James IV. But although one immediately feels sorry for her, you then discover that actually James IV had handed over a very large sum of money to her that he'd received from the King of France. And instead of putting it into the treasury, as, as she should have done, she kept it. So it's perhaps not surprising that the Scots lords weren't that keen to, to give her any more money. Uh, but yeah, money money became a, an overriding problem for Margaret and, you know, much of her life seems to be concerned about it. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about this political situation that she found herself in at the time. I, I know from having looked at at. James the sixth slash first and and the stories with Mary Queen of Scots and it Scotland's politics at the time were really difficult to navigate that's putting it mildly isn't it yes absolutely they although the although no one ever tried to or you know it was very rare for rebellion against the the Stuart kings no one ever really tried to overturn them yet there was permanent low-level niggling against the centralisation of power by the king. Feuding and a quite, I don't know, a sort of a traditional pattern of family feuds and clan feuds and blood guilt was, was still very strong in Scotland. So it was considered perfectly acceptable for mm. nobles to feud amongst themselves and you know, quite often, um, you know, kill each other without it necessarily being seen as something that the government ought to have any control over. Uh, and there was also the matter of, mm -hmm. you know, poverty. It, it was not a rich country. And a number of Scots nobles actually took quite significant bribes, particularly from England, but also from France. Uh, so there was always the tension between the pro-English and the pro-Scots, um, sorry, the pro-English and the pro-French nobles. There was a lot of low-level border warfare between England and Scotland, which both sides um, indulged in. And I think the English probably ceded more of it with, with hard cash. You know, they'd pay people to, to, to raid Scotland. But 
it was much, much closer to the centre of Scottish power, so much more on the king's doorstep. Whereas for the English kings, you know, it was all happening, you know, 250 miles away. For the Scottish kings, it was just down the road. So it, it was much more a, a, a part of sort of mainstream political life. So there was, you know, there were lots and lots of different factions, lots and lots of different clans feuding and families arguing amongst themselves, a much less centralisation of power than in than, than what Margaret w- was used to at her father's court. So when she married the Earl of Angus, Archibald Douglas, that instantly upset everybody who didn't like the Douglases, and there were quite a few people who didn't like the Douglases. Um, so so she she aligned herself with one group rather than being seen to be above them. Hmm. So, yeah, talk to me about why she remarried. I mean, it's difficult to know. I mean, it's a bit like when Mary, Queen of Scots, married Bothwell. You think, you know, what was she thinking? Um, Linda Porter, in her book, Crown of Thistles, um, postulates that Margaret was actually forced into it, uh, perhaps not, you know, absolutely by, by violence, but that, you know, there was a good deal of pressure exerted on her. I I would tend to think that she chose to do it. And the reason I I think she chose to marry Douglas, um, well, Douglas, yeah, the Earl of Angus, is that at a later date when they proved unhappy, her complaint against him was that he he didn't love her. So that seems to me to to be the indication of a marriage that she thought was was one of love rather than a, you know, a political match. Well, I mean, the Douglases were extremely powerful that she thought that choosing you know, one one of the nobles above the rest would give her uh, military and financial support. And that, you know, that that was her plan. She was going to choose one of them and she just happened to like Douglas better. But it, or possibly it was just the impulse of a moment. You know, perhaps it was it was just good old fashioned lust. It, it, it was not it was not the, the the most politically sensible move she ever made. That's that's for certain. <laughs> but you know, you, you, she was again. You've got to remember, she was she was just a, a, a young woman. I mean, still only twenty four. She'd had, I think, five or six childbirths by the time she married Angus. She'd lost four children. She'd she'd only had a baby in in the spring, and she married him in the August. She'd been widowed the year before. You, you know, I mean, it's very possible she had postnatal depression, or you know, perhaps she just wasn't thinking straight. Yeah. 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 She was lonely, huh. I suppose, and wanted, you know, wanted support, which she certainly yeah. wasn't getting from her brother. Yeah, it's kind of, it's one of those things like with Mary, Queen of Scots, where you think, what, what, what was the point of this? Where, where did you think this was yeah. going to get you? And, and of course, it's so easy with hindsight to say it was a bad marriage. But had Angus yeah. perhaps been a better husband to her or, you know, perhaps if he'd been a bit older, he was only 24. So he was probably bouncing off the walls with testosterone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, did she ever really become Scottish, or was she always English at heart? I think, I think she was. I think she would have become more Scottish, and if if, if James had lived, she was a good Scottish queen consort. I think, and she obviously identified with his interests up until the Battle of Flodden. But after that, perhaps perhaps because the the Scots nobles, you know, effectively turned against her and preferred Albany. Her her only power really was was being the sister of the King of England. That was her only bargaining point. 
And of course, she had been brought up like all, all good English princesses to hate and fear France. So Scotland being allied to France was always going to be a difficult one for her. Although at times she did toy with it and she did keep threatening to Henry that if he didn't um, support her suitably, that she would effectively defect to the French party. Yeah, I, I think it was it was hard for her to, to overcome that. And we also have to remember that the idea of a of a nation state was not really how how they thought about things. Um, you know, what was important to to Margaret was her son being King of Scots rather than necessarily the benefit of right. the people of Scotland per se. So what do we know about her later life? What was her later life like? Well, as I, as I said before, she she had this little jaunt back into England when she escaped because she was, she was genuinely uh, worried about Albany. Um, so she spent a year or 18 months at, at the court of Henry VIII with her, her sister Mary, the French queen, uh, her sister-in-law Catherine of Aragon, and you know, clearly had quite an enjoyable time apart from a lack of cash. But she then returned to Scotland and the, the, the difficulty was the marriage with Angus because for some reason uh, Henry VIII tended to prefer Angus to his own sister. And, and, you know, whether it was a sort of a male-female thing, you know, he couldn't possibly believe a, a woman's word, but that, that doesn't seem altogether likely. Or whether they just, you know, whether there was some sort of sibling rivalry, which has been suggested. But Henry's idea of the perfect outcome was Margaret as regent of Scotland uh, dancing to his tune with Angus being the strong man. That, that was, you know, what he wanted to happen. Whereas Margaret refused to live with Angus once she returned to Scotland because he had set himself up in one of her castles with her dower money and his mistress. So she was not willing to compromise on that one. Not a good move. No, absolutely not. Um, so, as I said before, I mean, she did try to compromise with him. And then when Albany came back from France, she then actually realised that Albany was probably her best bet of a good life in Scotland because he was, he treated her very respectfully. He was willing for her to see her children. So presumably the fear that, well, actually her one child by then, as, as poor Alexander died young, uh, I, I think her fears, her fears sort of calmed down and he, he tried to get her money monies restored to her. So in fact, it was rumoured that Albany and uh, Margaret were actually having an affair and so when she decided that she wanted to have her marriage to Angus annulled, uh, it was heavily resisted by the English in Rome uh, because they thought she would end up marrying Albany. So, yeah, mm. I mean, the, 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 the plot just thickens whichever way you look. Uh, <sighs> Ang uh, Albany gave up in disgust and went back to France. Angus took control of James for about 18 months and wouldn't let him see Margaret and, you know, sort of controlled the whole government. But he was not popular and there were a number of, you know, sort of minor, I mean, civil war wouldn't wouldn't be a fair description, but there were, a, you know, a couple of armed incidents and, you know, some more, more feuds were started when at the a battle known as Cleanse the Causeway, Angus's men killed the brother of the Earl of Arran so that created a long-running feud between the Hamiltons and the Douglases. And then in another attempt to free James from Angus's 
clutches. The Earl of Lennox was killed, which then created a, a feud between the Douglases and the Lennox Stuarts. So, you know, it's all it's all happening. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's all good fun. So Margaret, so Margaret eventually uh, came up with a plan to divorce Angus on the grounds. Bizarrely, not that um, he had been pre-contracted to marry the woman he was living with, which would have been a you know fairly standard excuse that he wasn't free to marry, but with the suggestion to the Pope that when she'd married Angus, James IV was still alive. That he'd survived the Battle of Flodden for three years, and you know no, nobody seemed to know quite where he was or what had happened to him. But that that was the story. And she asked for a you know an interesting, yeah, interesting. Yes. So, how did she explain where he had uh, been? She didn't really. I mean, there, there had been rumours after the battle that James, in fact, had not been killed, and the reason that it was possibly questionable. I mean, first it was questioned whether he was killed on the battlefield or whether he was killed after, which would have been a shameful thing to do. So let us hope that the Earl of Surrey didn't didn't do anything so shameful because it was it was fine to kill somebody on the battlefield, but you didn't you didn't murder people afterwards. Mm-hmm. So James's body, what they thought was James's body, was not wearing the iron belt that James always wore. Now, James wore an iron belt in for penance because his father had been killed, possibly after a battle, uh, in a rebellion that was actually led by, funnily enough, um, Angus's grandfather, another another Earl of Angus, at which James himself had been present as a young man, and following which he was he was crowned as James the Fourth. So he always felt very guilty about his father's death, and he wore this this iron belt which was not on the body that was stated to be his after the Battle of Flodden. Now, of course, from a practical point of view, he'd probably have taken it off to to fight. So, um, you know, hardly a proof. And people were always very keen for, for kings to have survived battles or to have survived being murdered. I mean, sure. uh, but anyway, that was that was Margaret's story. The Pope, in fact, didn't didn't go for that request although he did grant an annulment this was uh, early 1527 on the grounds that uh, angus hadn't been free to marry henry Mm. was absolutely beside himself at the idea of of margaret seeking a divorce and even wrote her rather pompous letters about the indissolubility of matrimony even at the very same time he was he was hoping to um, have his marriage annulled but obviously that that sort of thing didn't bother Henry. So having having well, got it's rid of, different when it's absolutely Henry. completely different in his case. Yes. So <laughs> having got rid of Angus, she married again. Another bad choice: a chap called Henry Stuart, James V, who was now into his teens and had more or less taken over um, government for himself by then. He didn't really approve, but he accepted his mother's remarriage and. Uh, gave the chap a, a title, so he became Lord Medvin. Uh, but unfortunately, he didn't turn out to be a brilliant husband either because he also um, spent Margaret's money on his mistresses. And she, tried to divorce, yes. yeah, she tried to divorce him later, but uh, James V absolutely put a stop to it. He wasn't going to have his mother making a complete laughing stock of them all. So she, she was forced to, to put up with Medvin, and they seemed to actually um, get on all right by the end. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, so once once James had taken over for himself, to to begin with, in the in the early days of his, his sort of personal rule, when he was still in his mid-teens, he did take Margaret's advice to a degree, but he was definitely his own man, James V. And Margaret was very keen that he should uh, be on good terms with her brother. She hoped and tried to engineer a meeting between the two kings. She also was very keen on the idea that James V should marry his cousin, Mary, who uh, in the late 1520s was Henry VIII's likely heir. Uh, James V was not so keen on the idea, and he wanted to preserve the, 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 the French alliance. And James absolutely hated Angus and he wouldn't have anything to do with him. And he was very pro-French rather than pro-English, which was probably quite distressing for Margaret because she could see that, that, you know, there there was no way that there was going to be um, a real rapprochement between between the countries. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of her life in the late 1530s, James's second wife, Marie of Guise, uh, was almost the ideal daughter-in-law. Actually, she was she was very um, generous and kind to Margaret, and sort of brought her into the fold of the family a lot more. Uh, so Margaret's last years were perhaps um, a bit happier. She had, uh, although uh, heartbroken, they were all heartbroken when James and Marie's two two little boys died on the same day. Which I mean, you can't imagine anything more shocking, can you? Your, your two children dying on the yeah. same day. Um, yeah. And then Margaret died in October 1541, probably from a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, she she asked for she asked James to come to her on her deathbed, but he didn't make it in time. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, is there is there anything else we should know about her? Um, she she loved beautiful clothes, and I mean, it's, it's some, some of the touches. She, she was a great musician. She she loved music, and that was one of the things she had in common with with James the Fourth. They spent a lot of time and money with. Um, she played the lute. She played the clavichords. Uh, I mean, she she was she was really very much cut out to be a, a late medieval queen. You know, she she liked presiding over tournaments and uh, listening to minstrels. And I'm you know I'm not. Um, decrying her political abilities, but she she was very well suited to that uh, that role that she'd been brought up for. Um, you know, the women's education by and large was not was to fit them to be queen's consort, not generally to be to be rulers or regents. And although there were very successful women regents, uh, Margaret didn't seem quite to have the hang of it. Mm-hmm. So, where can we go to learn more about her? Um, there aren't enough, there aren't many biographies of her. There's the good old standby Agnes Strickland's mm-hmm. Lives of the Queens of England. She did. She also wrote a number on the um, the Queens of Scotland, and Margaret's covered in that. Um, mm-hmm. As always with Strickland, there's there's quite a lot of original material, but she's very very romantic. In the in modern books, there's Mariah Perry's Sisters to the King, which is a two-handed biography of Margaret and her sister Mary. Um, it's it's okay. Um, it's not one of the one of the best biographies I've ever read, um, but it certainly does give the um, most of the important information about her life. Other than that, Margaret 
Margaret tends to appear as a as a bit part player in other other biographies. There's Linda Porter's Crown of Thistles that I mentioned earlier, which is mm-hmm. more sympathetic towards her, as is Leander Delisle's Tudor, the family story, which covers Margaret. And yes, those two, they're, they're most up to date works, um, although they don't concentrate on her. There's Rosalind Marshall's Scottish Queens, which has a chapter on her, and also Rosalind Marshall's uh, The Queen's Women, which talks about all of Mary, Queen of Scots' female relatives, which I think covers Margaret as well. And, of course, there is there is a full um, biography of her on our Tudor Times website. <laughs> of course there is, so people should go there first to check that out. Yes, and there's a... There's, the usual list of sources and bibliography that they can they can have a look at for something more in depth. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us all about Margaret Tudor. For more Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. For information on Margaret, go to www.tutortimes.co.uk or you can check out the resources available on the EnglandCast site at www.englandcast.com. I'll be back in about two more weeks to wrap up the series on Tudor Rebellions and we're going to kind of just bring everything from the first two episodes together and look at how the rebellions impacted our particular 16th century monarchs and the monarchy long-term. We're just going to pull together and synthesize all of the stuff we've been talking to talking about in this mini cat mini series that we've been working on. So thank you so much for listening and I will talk with you again soon. Bye-bye.